Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 16th. In today's news, California's governor orders 5,000 more body bags in the face of soaring COVID deaths. The U.S. government spent billions on a system for detecting hacks. The Russians outsmarted it. And Joe Biden picks a domestic climate czar as President Trump further eviscerates the Endangered Species Act on his way out the door. But first, the big idea. President Trump attacked Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in a tweet storm at 1 a.m. for acknowledging that Joe Biden won the election. McConnell held a conference call for all the Senate Republicans yesterday afternoon to plead with them not to join House Republicans in their effort to challenge the election results on January 6th when the Electoral College results are tabulated. McConnell said it would be a terrible vote for Republicans because it would force all of them to either choose between voting for Trump or against democracy, and he doesn't want them to be forced to choose in such a public fashion. McConnell was backed up on the call by fellow Republican leaders John Thune and Roy Blunt. Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia said afterwards that there was no pushback. John Barrazzo, the number three in Republican leadership from Wyoming, said he hasn't heard of any Republican senator being willing to join the effort to contest the results. But Trump allies in the House say they have not given up and they have multiple options to forge ahead. Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, said he will not challenge the results on January 6th, but he's using his final days as chairman of the powerful Homeland Security Committee to hold a hearing today into what he calls election irregularities. Johnson has invited several witnesses who have promoted baseless claims of voter fraud that have been widely rejected and not even taken up by courts. Mitt Romney urged that the hearing not take place because he says there is no evidence. But Johnson ignored his plea. The leaders of Mexico, Brazil, and Russia finally congratulated Biden yesterday. As they did, North Carolina Republican State Senator Bob Steinberg called on Trump publicly to suspend civil liberties, invoke the Insurrection Act to deploy troops on U.S. soil, and declare a national emergency so that he can retain power indefinitely. Virginia State Senator Amanda Chase, a Republican candidate for governor next year, also called on Trump to declare martial law yesterday, echoing a suggestion by former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. At a rally in Atlanta yesterday, Biden took aim at Georgia's Republican senators, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, over their support for that Texas lawsuit that would have overturned the results in their own state and three other swing states. Meanwhile, in Florida, Mar-a-Lago neighbors really want Trump to spend his post-presidency somewhere else. That message was formally delivered yesterday in a demand letter delivered to the town of Palm Beach and addressed to the Secret Service, asserting that Trump has no legal right to live at Mar-a-Lago because of an agreement that he signed in the 1990s when he converted the story to state from his private residence to a private club. Manuel Roig Franzia and Carol Lennig report that this legal maneuver could, at long last, force Palm Beach to publicly address whether Trump can make Mar-a-Lago his legal residence, as he has planned to do in January. The contretemps sets up an awkward scenario, unique in recent history, in which a former Oval Office occupant would find himself having to officially defend his choice of a place to live after he leaves the power. It also creates a legal headache for Trump because he changed, for tax purposes, his official domicile to Mar-a-Lago, leaving behind Manhattan and Trump Tower. The current residency controversy tracks back to 1993. Trump's finances were foundering, 
The cost of maintaining Mar-a-Lago was soaring into the multi-millions each year. And he agreed to a deal. Club members at Mar-a-Lago are banned from spending more than 21 days a year in the club's guest suites, and they're not allowed to stay there for any longer than seven consecutive days. Before that arrangement was sealed, an attorney for Trump promised the town council during a public meeting that Trump would never live at Mar-a-Lago. Now, this is far from the only problem facing the president when he leaves power. Last night, a judge in New York ordered the Trump organization to turn over more records to that state's attorney general. The documents and communications at issue could help investigators answer questions about a very suspicious conservation easement that was granted a few years back at Trump's Seven Springs estate in suburban Westchester County. The move netted Trump's company a $21 million tax deduction. The materials, which Trump's lawyers have fought tooth and nail to shield from view, include a series of messages exchanged between an engineer and a land use lawyer who was working on Trump's behalf. Trump argued unsuccessfully in court that these records were covered by attorney-client privilege. The Trump Organization has been ordered to provide the documents by Friday. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Wednesday. Number one, a nationwide sense of relief is growing as a second coronavirus vaccine appears poised for approval just days after thousands of healthcare workers received doses of the first one. The FDA says the second vaccine, developed by Moderna, is highly effective in clinical trials and carried no serious safety concerns. The FDA is likely to authorize the two-shot regimen as soon as Friday. Such an approval will clear the way for the shipment of almost 6 million doses of that vaccine next week, double the number being sent out this week by Pfizer. This is exciting. But the initially limited supplies will not meet demand until well into 2021, and scientists don't know yet whether the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines or others in development actually prevent recipients from spreading the virus or only from being sickened by it. The elation was also shadowed by the grim cadence of rising coronavirus case counts and new deaths one day after the national death toll reached 300,000. Infections seeded over Thanksgiving are finally beginning to show up in state reports, and it's not pretty. Yesterday, over 190,000 new cases were confirmed and more than 2,800 deaths were reported. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the state has ordered 5,000 more body bags because the bodies are piling up. There are 60 refrigerated storage units on standby. Officials in the Golden State have activated a mutual aid program for coroners designed to help local authorities cope with mass casualty events like terrorism. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan has deployed the National Guard to help distribute coronavirus vaccines to hospitals, nursing homes, and local health departments. He's called up the Guard in an effort to quell mounting anxieties over the pace of inoculations as the D.C. region's death toll reached its highest weekly average since May. And overnight, the Republican mayor of Dodge City, Kansas, resigned after being deluged with phone and email threats over her support for a mask mandate. Joyce Warshaw was quoted in a USA Today article last week expressing support for the mandate after the city commission passed it four to one. She says that opened the floodgates of hate. She says she no longer feels safe in her position. In happier news, Tilly Dibing, a 107-year-old Minnesota woman, has just beat COVID. She also had the 1918 influenza as a girl, and she beat uterine cancer decades back. Talk about a survivor. Number two. When Russian hackers first slipped their digital Trojan horses into our federal government's computer systems sometime in the spring, 
They sat dormant for days, doing nothing but hiding. Then the malicious codes sprang into action and began communicating with the outside world. At that moment, when the Russian malware began sending transmissions from federal servers to command and control computers operated by the hackers, a golden opportunity for detection arose. Much as human spies behind enemy lines are particularly vulnerable when they radio home to report what they found. But Craig Timberg and Ellen Nakashima report that the hackers hid well and the government systems failed. The Russians wiped away their tracks and communicated through IP addresses in the United States rather than ones in, say, Moscow to minimize suspicion. The hackers also shrewdly used novel bits of malicious code that apparently evaded the U.S. government's multi-billion dollar detection system, codenamed Einstein, which focuses on finding new uses of known malware and also detecting connections to parts of the internet used in previous hacks. But Einstein, operated by the Department of Homeland Security, was not equipped to find novel malware or internet connections despite a 2018 report from the GAO suggesting that building such capability would be a wise investment. The federal government has invested massively in securing its myriad computers, especially since that devastating Chinese government hack of the Office of Personnel Management in 2015, when more than 20 million federal employees and others had their personal information, including Social Security numbers, compromised. But this year's months-long hack, discovered in recent days, has revealed new weaknesses, while also underscoring some previously known ones, including the government's reliance on widely used commercial software that provides potential attack vectors for nation-state hackers. The Russians reportedly found their way into the federal systems by first hacking SolarWinds, a Texas-based maker of network monitoring software. Reuters reports that SolarWinds was warned last year that anyone could access its update server simply by using the password I kid you not, SolarWinds123. The password to get into the SolarWinds update server was SolarWinds123. Apparently, multiple criminals have offered to sell access to SolarWinds' computers through underground forums on the dark net. And SolarWinds investors traded a suspiciously large $280 million of the stock during the days before the hack was revealed on Sunday. That has sent the share price plunging more than 20%. A former enforcement official at the Securities and Exchange Commission and an accounting expert say that these trades will likely spark an investigation by federal securities watchdogs into whether they amount to insider trading. Number three, President-elect Biden nominated one-time rival Pete Buttigieg to be his Secretary of Transportation and former Michigan Governor Jen Granholm to be Secretary of Energy. The move elevates Buttigieg to a key role in the incoming administration's push to rebuild the nation's infrastructure and address climate change. Granholm has been a strong advocate for zero-emissions vehicles. Biden is also tapping Gina McCarthy, who ran the EPA under Barack Obama and now leads the Natural Resources Defense Council, to coordinate his domestic climate agenda from a senior perch at the White House. She will be the domestic counterpart to John Kerry, who's going to focus on climate change on a global basis. As the incoming president fills his government, Trump is racing to jam through a rule this week that will massively shrink protected habitat for endangered wildlife. The Trump-appointed directors of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service have just formalized a new rule that changes the definition of what a habitat is under the Endangered Species Act. 
This is the second major rollback the administration has made in its final weeks to the signature wildlife protection law. Daryl Fields reports that under the new definition, only critical habitat that can sustain a species in question can be protected, as opposed to a broader habitat that a plant or animal might one day occupy if it's suitable. Conservationists denounce this change as favoring developers over wildlife that they say have already been put at risk over the last few years. The new rule will likely open vast swaths of land to agriculture, logging, and commercial development. Separately, the Trump administration announced yesterday that they will not list monarch butterflies as an endangered species, despite shocking declines in their population. Migratory western butterflies have reached a record low this year, putting them at the brink of extinction. An annual count shows there are fewer than 2,000 of these beautiful orange migratory butterflies, a significant decline from 30,000 in last year's count, and millions in the 1980s. While the Fish and Wildlife Service determined that the monarch meets all the listing criteria under the Endangered Species Act, Trump appointees opted not to list the butterfly. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, December 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.